Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience to leave the greatest impact possible. And now here's your host, a filmmaker and competitive storyteller, Rain Bennett. What's up, my beautiful people? Welcome to another episode of the Storytelling Lab, where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling. My name is Rain Bennett. I am your host, and my job is to help you deepen your connections, increase your sales, and serve your audiences better. Every Monday morning, I send out a storytelling tip to my email subscribers, and I talk about how I have used it in my own storytelling for my clients and for myself, and I leave you with tangible advice on how you can apply it to your strategies. If this sounds like something that would interest you, go ahead and sign up for the newsletter at rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. Again, that's rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. This podcast is a Six Second Stories production. Six Second Stories is a video marketing agency that helps you tell heartfelt stories to maximize your impact in minimal time. Find out more about what we do at SixSecondStories.com. Hello, all my compelling storytellers. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021 and welcome back to the Storytelling Lab. If you haven't noticed, we've taken a little bit of a break, which we like to do uh, twice a year, once in the summer and once uh, at the end or the beginning of a new year. But just because I know you missed us and you missed all the storytelling tips and tricks and techniques that we give you, I like to do a recap episode. Now, season five was, I think, the best season that we've had yet. We are having bangers on for guests. We are having amazing storytelling experts coming from all different fields, all different perspectives on storytelling and how we use storytelling. We talked about different you know, topics and subtopics and ways that we can use stories to further progress our 
our missions, our goals to help us get closer to achieving the, the, the purpose that we feel like we're designed for. Now, here's the question. Is this the year that you're going to finally take control of your story? If 2020 has taught us anything, it is that we cannot depend on anything else but ourselves. And a lot of us, myself included, have had to, wait for it, overused uh, entrepreneurial word, pivot in 2020. We had to change. We had to adapt. We had to adjust. And to do that, you have to change the story that you're telling yourself. You have to use stories internally, externally to see your way forward. And I think a lot of people are in that situation. So here is my pledge to you. I want to help you do that. I want to be your guide on this journey. And I will do that. But I need you to meet me here at the Storytelling Lab every Thursday starting February 4th. In the meantime, we're going to recap some of the best episodes and the best moments of season five. Now, the first one we're going to start with is Julia Campbell from J. Campbell Social. She is a nonprofit uh, social media expert and storytelling expert. And what I love that what I love about what Julia talks about is it's really the essence of what we talk about through the whole show about how we feel about storytelling. And it's about making connections through your storytelling, through your social media or whatever media that you use to market. It's not really about selling your products. It's about making connections. That's something that has become so clear to me in recent years of of my career. And especially now that I'm focusing so much on storytelling is that storytelling is by far, hands down, the most effective way to establish human connection. Once you establish those human connections and those bonds, what you do with it then is is up to you and, and, and dependent upon your mission and your purpose. So you can use connection to grow communities. You can use connection to help see your way you know, forward through a dark time. You can use connection to sell your products or your services or promote your products or your services. You can use connection to do anything. But you have to establish those human bonds. So it's all about your authentic self, telling your story, putting your journey and sharing your story and putting your journey out there. So Julia has been doing this for a long time. I want you to listen very carefully to what she says about how you can capture and share your stories. Check it out. First of all, I don't think that social media should be outsourced completely. So Facebook ads, Google ads, things that are very scientific and technical and hard to do, or video certainly could be outsourced, um, professional photography, that kind of thing. But the real meat and potatoes of what you should be posting on social media really should be from your perspective, the program officer's perspective, from people that are inside the organization every single day and eat, sleep, and breathe the cause. Hmm. So- that's a question I get all the time. Do you, do you do social media for people? And I always say, well, no, <laughs> like I I'll help you figure out what are the best things to post and how to get them. But I really believe that the most effective organizations are documenting what they're doing every day. Mm. So that's a famous Gary V quote. I'm not Gary V's biggest fan. Um, but I do like his, that one quote that he had, document don't create. We get so focused in content creation. We have to have a perfect content calendar. Every photo has to be perfect. Every video has to be perfect. Um, we have to have this perfect from, you know, 
A to Z soup to nuts mm-hmm. story that's all tied up in a bow. So it's daunting. that's something that's carried along for nonprofits as long as I have worked in nonprofit organizations. But if you look at the way people communicate now, the influencers, the most popular influencers online get vulnerable. They get out of their comfort zone. They talk about their personal stories. They document what they're doing during the day. And I think for nonprofits, we have such an opportunity. You know, a lot of us have to deal with client confidentiality, and I understand that. But you as a development director, you as an executive director, you can be the face of the organization. You can give me an update every Friday that just says, here are the three things you need to know this week. Here's what's going on, especially in these crazy uncertain times that we're in right now. I think it's even more important to be out there and and talking about what is going on in the trenches, on the ground in your organization. So thinking about it as just taking out your phone and doing a really quick post, taking a really quick photo, even if you're just working from home, maybe getting other people on your staff to show how they're working from home or show what they're doing right now. How are you opening up? Like, what are the precautions you're using? Mm -hmm. I know in um, Boston where I live, the museums are allowed to open up as of today. And several of the local museums around here, they've been doing Facebook lives to show you how they're reopening, like Very what cool. they're doing. It's, it's interesting. Great so idea. they're not creating this perfect content that's going right. to live forever. They're documenting. They're documenting. And I, I just, that's what social media is supposed to be for. It's like a law. It's like a big document of your life. You know, when you look at your Facebook memories, you think, oh my gosh, that was 10 <laughs> years ago. So, right. That's so true. So next up, we have my friend Troy Sandage from Fine Troy. He is a another social media marketing expert. And Troy picks up right where Julia left off, talking about authenticity and connection. However, I really liked, I really enjoyed this conversation. What's funny about Troy, as a quick side note, he said that his dad loved our conversation more than than probably any other one that he's listened to his son be on. And he, he's, I can tell he's the type of dad that listens to all of them. And he listened to, to our episode like 10 times, no joke, and and said because it sounded so such an sounded like such an authentic conversation, uh, which totally made me made me happy. That's what we aim for. But Troy and I really hit it off and became friends. And we're actually collaborating on other things in 2021, uh, hosting some clubhouse rooms together and and various other things. He is awesome. But he picks right back up where Julia left off with authenticity and connection with your storytelling. But specifically, I really love this clip that I'm going to play here in a second because he's talking about the connection that you have with yourself, like your own journey and what you're trying to achieve, the story that you're telling yourself. You see these themes keep coming up too when we talk about the stories we tell others. Often, always, I would argue, it starts with the story that you tell yourself. And so in this clip, Troy talks about how it's so important to understand what you're trying to accomplish, what your end goal is, what what the story that you're trying to craft is about. And then you can understand how you can share stories to can make connections and 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 get engagement and get community and people that can back you and get behind you in trying to achieve that mission. Listen to what Troy has to say. When you ask someone, why are you in business? Why are you listening to this podcast? 
what are you looking to get out of it? There's a story behind it. I'm listening to this podcast so I can get something out of it that can help me do X, Y, Z. That can help me be profitable. That can help me make more money. That provides for my family a better quality of life. All that ties back into what your story is. And I think one of the, the gems that have come out of all this chaos and the pandemic is that for like the first time, people are more transparent than they've ever been. We're not living behind these facades or these things of I'm trying to look like this and I got to talk a certain way. People are on LinkedIn right now saying, I need help. This is what I need for me to stay in business. And guess what's happening? People are like, okay, either I can't help you directly or I will try to find someone who can help you. And now people are getting away from this pride of that, hey, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a nine to fiver, I'm a workerpreneur, I'm trying to do this or trying to do that. I'm a side hustler, I don't know what to do or I'm struggling ask for help. Stop trying to make it look like you're all million dollars, bros. We got money. We got cars and planes on your Instagram looking lit and knowing that you got your last dollar. Like, let's get beyond that. And now it's happening. Oh my gosh. It's like a a whole new revelation of marketing that is coming before us in this more authentic and transparent way. And I think this is going to help us long-term because now we're all just, there's enough room for everybody. There's enough room for everybody. Let's take that again, because now Oh, okay, I can help you. You can help me. If we both get X amount of more money than we didn't have before, we both win versus everyone trying to hoard it all to themselves. And guess what? No one gets it because they're using tactics that aren't authentic and transparent and just being more human and less just seeing numbers. And I think right now, tying back into storytelling, that's the part is that I want to connect with your heart. I want to connect. That sounds very cliche. You know, you think of um, Captain Planet, right? And everyone wants to be the fire guy or the water or whatever. But it's like heart. We need a heart to make Captain Planet. Like, are you kidding me right now? But hey, yes, that's the way to connect with us as humans and get that empathy to get them to per- respond and provide value, build your community up, and obviously make money. But beyond that, make sustainable revenue. For those who are telling the story of the nonprofits, right? They're struggling right now, more than for profits. But guess what? If they build communities and tell their story in the right way, people will think of them and say, well, money is short and tight right now because we're trying to save money. We don't know what the market's going to be, investments and everything else. But if I can give you $1 and if a thousand people give you $1 and 10,000 people, guess what? They're going to give you that money and keep you going, keep you in business. We're going to realize right now that if you're not being authentic, authentic and being transparent and how you communicate your story and talking to not broadcasting, but having those conversations, those are the people that are going to survive. And if you're not doing that, you're going to fail. So right at the end of Troy's clip there, he talked about nonprofits and how nonprofits are really struggling right now. They are. And to be honest, nonprofits, especially small to medium size, are, are always struggling. It's really hard for them to to try to achieve their missions because they're often understaffed, under-resourced, overworked. They don't have enough time, money, and resources. And because of that, because as an independent documentary filmmaker, that is a world that I navigated for 15 years and still navigate when you when you don't have enough time, money, and resources. I've often worked with nonprofits, and a lot of the, the content that we create here at the Storytelling Lab is to help nonprofits. A lot of my clients uh, with Six Second Stories are nonprofits 
nonprofits that are making documentary films to to use for marketing pieces. And so that's always something that's at my heart. Uh, I've spoken at nonprofit communicator conferences. Like I always tend to come back to that. So this next clip is from a very unique episode of the Storytelling Lab. I had on Amanda Cazola. Now, Amanda was a client of mine. She works for a nonprofit organization called Reinvestment Partners, and they do housing counseling and, and a lot of different other programs that basically help people uh, be educated and and stay in their homes uh, if they're at risk of being evicted or foreclosed upon or anything like that. So I have... Uh, Amanda met me. I spoke at a at a nonprofit communicator conference, and then I've also done video work for Reinvestment Partners. And then, in 2020, she and her uh, organization were one of those that were really struggling with a loss of funds, and so they had a new venture, a new um, a new strategy they were going to implement to use crowdfunding so that they could. Uh, implement an online web form that would help them serve people better because their offices were closed. Most of their clients didn't uh, have access to printers. They couldn't fill out the forms. And so they found this unique way to use software to help even more people, but they needed to raise the money because they had a, a loss of funding uh, and they needed to raise the money to to pay for the form and for the uh, developer to, to implement that on, on their site, etc. So they wanted to do crowdfunding. They've never done crowdfunding before. And Amanda hired me as a story coach to walk her through that process. And fast forward, we ended up being successful. We raised $13,000 for them in a month. I helped her along the process. And I thought about it. I was like, this is a real life case study of someone knowing they needed to use storytelling, understanding the importance of it, having to convince their board and their superiors uh, and their higher ups to, to, to go for this and to hire me. And it worked. It was successful. So I was like, this is a perfect opportunity to to just talk about this case study and look at what worked and what didn't work for Amanda, because I know a lot of my listeners out there are in nonprofit organizations. And here's the thing, even if you're not, this still applies. If you're trying to make sales or raise money or, or whatever you're trying to do, the strategies and tactics that Amanda and I used are still applicable to to your situation. So what I love about this clip from Amanda is that she talked about one, how you can use storytelling to motivate people to take action. We talk about this a lot on the podcast and in, and in the videos that I create. Stories are known to inspire action, but we talk, she talked about when that action is to get people to donate money in a time where everyone is struggling, like the year 2020, how you can do that and what works and what doesn't work. And secondly, it talked about how you can use this storytelling tactic and, and, and crowdfunding, how you can target specific customers that you think this applies to, how to not be pushy, but pull them in with a story. She didn't want to bombard people with emails if they weren't ready for it. She didn't want to keep hitting them with emails as the campaign went on. She didn't want to be annoying and run people off. And there's a very thin line. And I feel very strongly that storytelling is the way to to combat that, to have it not seem like you're being salesy and pushy and it's all about me, but you're sharing with people what you're trying to do and you're basically asking them to come be a part of that story. Check out what Amanda says here and if you're interested or find yourself in a situation where you need to raise money, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to her episode. Here is Amanda Cazola from Reinvestment Partners. The two things that were hardest for me, uh, one of which you were incredibly helpful with, was deciding 
what to say, how much to say, how much detail to provide, and what not to say. Just in as much as you know, what do, what what, detail, what level of detail do people actually need to know in order to understand what you're trying to convey? And because uh, because we're in the industry, we have that curse of knowledge. We have so much, so mm-hmm. much that we're not going to say because it's understood to us, and we're not going to remember to say it. And then you also have things that we think are important to say that are just too much in the weeds that nobody wants to hear. And so being able to tease that out um, and get to the proper, the proper sequence, you know, what is it we need to say? How do we need to say it? But people will understand it. I mean, there's lots of different ways to understand things, but really what is the, going to be the most effective for the most people? And that was the, the goal. And there were times, you know, in working through the story, I'd get two pieces mixed up. I kept always putting you know, A before B or B before A when it should have been the other way around. And um, again, I think it's just because I had too much detail in my head. So getting a, a third party perspective to help tease that out and really get down to the, the bare bones was really essential. Um, and, uh, you know, asking anybody internally would have the same problems that I have, you know, that the knowledge and the, the curse of background. knowledge as you say yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and then the good the second thing that was just so, so um a, a big challenge during that time was trying to decide really who to target um so mm-hmm. we thought that you know reaching out to clients would be really uh effective because our services are free and so them having been helped in the past um that they would be open to giving but also wanting to be respectful of the fact that we obtained their emails through services and not for marketing. So um, I try to be really respectful of that and keep everybody's emails just, you know, we only want to see this, we don't want to see that. Um, and so that was the kind of a, a concern of mine. You know, are we going to target them? If so, how? You know, I don't want to be uh, disrespectful of how we obtained their information. Yeah, yeah. Did you, did you end up targeting them? We did. And, and they did- were some of our best donors. Oh, amazing. Did you, did you have to send like an initial email, just kind of asking permission or how did you handle that? Uh, well, I just, I targeted our email uh, messages differently. So for the client, oh, okay. I framed it in terms of, you know, you've received services from us in the past, you know, the value of these services. Mm-hmm. This is a problem that we're experiencing. Do you think you could help? And then anyone who had uh, concerns, who said they didn't want to be contacted anymore? Yeah, they could just unsubscribe. That's fine, and that's separate for the email marketing. And then some people would say, uh, you know, oh, this is the first time I'm hearing from you. Um, am I on your email list? And I would specifically say, no, you're not. You know, this was a kind of a one-time thing. Explained why that we were trying to be respectful, and that if you'd like me to add you to our regular newsletter list, I'd be glad to. And then they said, yes, that'd be great. Awesome. So. so- authenticity, transparency, just being honest, like, mm-hmm. and, and not pushy often works. And then for those that don't want it, yeah, just say, okay, no problem. So the next clip comes from Ashley Bernardi, who is an, uh, who is an awesome publicist that came on the show to talk about how we share our stories on broadcast media. She specifically helps people get booked on national TV shows, local and regional TV shows, podcasts, etc., and promote their causes, their products, their their art. Uh, a lot of the people that she works with, and this is how we met, are book authors. And so if you're trying to get the word out there a month or two or three or four before your book comes out and you want to get on local media or national media, 
uh, she helps people do that. And so she talked about how to share those authentic stories and how to be real and how to promote yourself without feeling icky, but to, to convey the value that you offer on broadcast media. And I thought it was so important to have her on the show because often now, especially when we have social media and there's so many different channels of ways that we can promote ourselves, um, sometimes we neglect those classical, those traditional media channels, which are still super beneficial. And also, we we secretly want those. I mean, who doesn't want to be on Good Morning America, right? But we have no idea how to get there. Here's the thing. There's a process. There's a strategy, just like everything else we do. And this is what Ashley does. She helps people implement that strategy to get you booked on shows to talk about the things that you love and the things that you have to offer the world. Check out what Ashley says here. Okay, that's such a great question. So this is what this kind of goes into my media training and what I teach people how to look, sound, feel their best on camera, especially in a virtual world, which is what we're in right now. So the first thing that you do always, if you're going to do, even if it's a podcast interview, a radio interview, if you're going to be on the phone with a, with a Washington Post reporter, you practice. You don't ever just go in and wing that interview, especially if it's a live TV interview. So what I do to prepare is I put together my talking points and I'll type them up. Some people like to write them, but you want to think about like, what are the three main points I want to get across in this interview? What is my main message? What is my why? So you have to think about what's my why for doing this interview. Do I want people to know about my book? Do I want people to know about my brand? Do I just want to be positioned as a thought leader in my expertise? What is your reason why? So then make sure that you focus on your message and practice by saying it out loud. So there's a couple of ways that I, that I tell people to do this. First, write down your anticipated questions that you think you're going to get asked. Practice by saying them out loud. Get your three main points across. Get your main message across. And we call this a message a simple communication statement. This is a comment about yourself, your message made without jargon so anybody can understand it, even a middle schooler. That's it. Comment made without jargon so anybody can understand it right? So that's your message. That's what you want to get across in that 14 second soundbite. And the other key is it's okay. Repetition is the key to retention. So it is okay to repeat your message. So I always tell my book authors that, yeah, get the title of your book in once, but Hey, twice, that's okay too. By saying something like, that's why I was so inspired to write blah, 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 the name of my book. Um, (laughs) Another thing is keeping it positive. So you can communicate your message in a way that's negative or that's kind of low energy or one that you're really excited about like how i'm so excited to be talking about media relations right now people are more likely to find you relatable and enjoyable to listen to if you are passionate and enthusiastic about your subject matter so bump up that energy level even in an interview that might not be taped or broadcast even in that print online interview because the reporter is going to come across that the other thing i'll say is smile smile over the phone like smile on camera it's okay you want it you want this to be your best interview so you can take it and we'll talk about amplification in a second so there's i, mean, I have several different ways That's i do good. workshops um so my my um one of my colleagues and I have been doing, ever since the pandemic hit, we have been doing workshops every month on teaching people how to look, sound, and communicate their message on camera in a virtual setting so they're more likely to be remembered and heard. So we teach this, and those are just some of my like quick tidbits. Now, the second part of the question that you asked is, how do we amplify this, right? Like, how do we make the most of it? So once you get a TV interview or a podcast interview booked, 
and, and, and it's published, do you just sit on it and say, okay, yay. No, you shout it from the rooftops. You tell the world there's so many opportunities. So here's what I advise my clients to do. You don't just post about that opportunity on social media once because the same people, there's different people going to your social media page a week later. Yes. There's also, if it's a podcast interview or a broadcast interview, what an opportunity to turn that interview into content, get it transcribed, get your interview transcribed by Temi and turn that into a blog post on LinkedIn or put it up on your website or use that for future story ideas or pitches for the media. So there's so many things that you can do And second or like it well, second, third, fourth. The other thing that you can do is use that to leverage other opportunities. So yes, let's say yes. that you want to use that to leverage a speaking engagement or another media placement. So I'll tell you this, if you want to be on national TV, you can't just start from ground zero and say, I want to be on national TV. They're going to look for links for you in an interview setting. So you must get local TV placements first before you go on into national TV, unless it's breaking news. But if you have sort of like the business lifestyle angle or more of like an evergreen topic that most people do on, on, um, on national TV, you must be a regular guest somewhere on local TV so they can look at that link and decide if they want to have you on and that what they look for to make the most of it. And here's what I was looking for when I was a national TV producer. How did that person look on camera? How did they sound on camera? How enthusiastic were they? How clear was their message? Were they confusing? And I would even sometimes think like, oh, I have a, you know, like a, Ivy League professor that I'm interviewing for the show, but his energy is so low. I can't put him on TV. The audience is going to change the channel and I'm a producer. I care about ratings in my segment. So they're thinking a lot about, again, going back to the beginning of our discussion is like, you need to think about the way producers are thinking yeah. because if you are, you know, if you're not excited to share your message, if you have lower energy, if you're not clear, you're more, less likely to get booked anyway. Yeah, they got to take care of their job. I mean, if you come yeah. off, you know, weak or or low energy, like you said, and and people tune out as they will if that energy is not, and something compelling that you're saying is not keeping them there, that goes on the producer's shoulders. So yeah. Yes. Oh, for sure. <laughs> and they'll be like, "Why didn't you screen that guest better, Ashley? We do not want him back. And also, we are not going to give you the seven thirty time slot anymore. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it falls on them. You you have to also think about in addition to you looking good like this producer is like keeping their fingers crossed that you're going to make them look good too okay so next up on our season five recap is nick jaworski who owns the company uh podcast monster but he just released his 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 own podcast he usually produces podcasts for other people but he just released his own podcast called shame rules so this episode we talked about the way shame shapes the world and everything around us specifically the stories that we tell ourselves are you seeing a theme here folks yeah yeah you are just like uh, Ashley talked to, to us about, you know, how we can we can share those stories and how we can be excited and and can, you know get other people excited about it and how we should should do that. You know, the 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 flip side of that is what makes it so hard is that we also at the same time we're struggling with the voices in the back of our head and the shame that we feel around something. This is the the the, the paradox of storytelling, of vulnerable, authentic storytelling is like. The things that are hardest sometimes to talk about and you feel most vulnerable when you talk about are the ways 
forward. Those are the things that are going to connect with people the most and inspire them to take action. These are the things that are going to help you be relatable and trustworthy and make those connections and then hopefully achieve your goals and your mission. But it's really, really hard to do that. But those are the things that are most effective. I've lived it. I've gone through it. And so many other people that I I have helped uh, experience the same thing. And so this episode is really powerful because now we're kind of talking about the dark side of it, like what's really going on and what's, what is the story that we're telling ourselves and the, the bigger issue, how we can get over that, how we can, can overcome that narrative, how we can change that narrative, how we can, can work through it and combat that and suppress that and understand that it's just a story that we're telling ourselves. Shame shapes everything around us. And once you start peeling those layers of the onion back, you really realize that. And it's significant, and we all experience it. But the first way to change those stories that we tell ourselves is to understand and realize and become aware that we're even telling ourselves a story. Then you can realize and say, oh, or ask yourself, like, what? Do I really feel that way? Why do I feel that way? Why do I feel like that person is is better than me? They're just different. Whatever the, the story is, you start to question it. When you start to question it, it starts to break apart a little bit. You start to see the flaws and the fallacies that are within it. Then you realize like, oh, this doesn't necessarily have to be true. Oh, this isn't true. This is just something that my, you know biases or my experiences or my background has 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 forced me to believe. But they're not real. They're, not, they're for no real reason. Facts haven't made me feel this way, right? Emotions have. And I can, I can change the way I view things. So uh, I really love this conversation with Nick. I think it's so important, the work that he is doing. He's, his, his podcast, again, is called Shame Rules. And it uses storytelling to examine and analyze the way shame influences so much of our lives. Check out what he has to say. You have to know that you're not alone. Mm. But I actually might argue that it's maybe more important to witness other people hear the story. Does that make sense? So yeah, say more about that. One thing for if someone to tell you a story and you go, "Oh, that was just like me." And but you know, if you're anybody, if anybody listening is like me, I might hear a story that's so similar, (laughs) and I'll go, "Wow, that sounds a lot like me." But I'm more garbage than they are. Or whatever, like so, right? So it's like really nice, but they're more redeemable than I am, right? Mm-hmm. Shame is a the, the the basic definition of shame and guilt, right? Guilt is I did something bad, and shame is I am bad. Right. So uh, the more shame you feel, of course, that just the deeper it goes, and the more terrible you feel about yourself. Um, but if you see someone tell a story, and you're with other people or whatever, and you can witness that other people generally don't care, or other people generally are accepting or understanding of the story. I think that that's just as powerful. And if you think about, I see you've got a wedding ring on, I don't know if you have kids or not, but like that, there's that sort of like modeling of what it means to see and view someone's shame, I think is just as powerful as it is to have told your own or even to have heard someone else's story. What's your goal with the show? Um, I want people to think critically about the ways in which shame invisibly shapes so i mean so much whether it's and often invisibly shapes our own opinions about things i was about to say took the words out of my mouth yeah it's like it's like if i don't realize that shame is a thing that 
I mean, how many laws or punishments exist from a notion of shame? Like, for example, I was thinking about this other day. It's actually in an episode recently. Why do we publish um, uh, mugshot photos? Like, what is that? Mm-hmm. It's not like, it's not a wanted poster. We, we got him. We got the guy. <laughs> like, the only function of that is to shame somebody. And this is supposed to be a restorative justice system, right? You're supposed to do your time and hopefully when you come out, you're supposed to be better off. Um, but if you look at it and you say, well, shame is bad. And then you look at our, our justice system, you would go, man, you couldn't design something more shameful from top to bottom if you tried. Um, and so how is it that anybody who comes out of there with any sort of like pride and sense of place in the world and contributes is like a hero to me. I mean, it's such a, it's such an onslaught onto our fellow citizens that I just wish that if we were to think about it more, it's not criminal justice just as an example, but if we think about it more, we might see how we're complicit in it and we might forgive ourselves for some of our problems. What's the first step to some of that forgiveness? Oh man, I don't know. You tell me like, right. Like how do you know, I, despite dealing with, uh, I went to the dentist today. (laughs) I went to the dentist today for my tooth and in my digital onboarding form, I had to say like, please be nice. (laughs) I know my tooth is a problem. I like have all the shame over my teeth and all this funny. And, uh, you know, it's not something that I think people can fully conquer. Um, and I think that it's more management. Yeah. I think if you did something might be wrong. Um, I, I, and I, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I haven't read enough Brene Brown and other people. I don't think anyone's (laughs) truly suggesting that you can conquer it, but we shouldn't be, um, it's a synonym conquered and ruled, but we shouldn't be, our lives should not be dictated by it, right? You're still going to feel it. There's a notion in shame research about what they call shame proneness, which is this idea that, Okay. Some people are highly prone to shame. Some people are not very prone to shame, but that doesn't actually indicate how much they actually feel it. You can be very, you can feel shame. You're not very prone to it. Sure. When you do, it is devastating. Devastating. (laughs) Or you can be very highly prone to shame. um, And when you feel it, it's just, you, you, maybe you're accustomed to it or whatever. You're able to push through. Boy, all that talk about shame really makes storytelling feel a little risky. Our next clip comes from Kevin Allison, who hosts the show, the storytelling show, the live storytelling show, Risk. It's also a podcast. Um, Now they're doing things virtually. Hopefully things will get back to normal and they can do them in person. But here's the deal. Kevin Allison is a comedian who was part of MTV's The State um, back in the 90s, which is a show that I loved uh, when I was a kid. I guess I was maybe an early teenager, maybe like 12 it was such a, it was so 90s. It was such a product of, of the time, of the era. The music was amazing. The, the comedy was like outlandish and irreverent and just, I mean, obscure. It was kind of like for my brother's generation, Generation X, Kids in the Hall was the show. And for, for elder millennials like myself, it was the state. And so I just had to say first, I was super stoked to to have Kevin on the show. He's such a delightful guy. Um, but I was really interested to learn his story because, yeah, he was a comedian. And, and then after the sketch comedy show stopped, the state stopped, 
he spent the next decade or so trying to find his his voice, his unique narrative voice, his comedic voice, because when he lost that collaborative um, thing of having a, a comedy troupe, of having a group of people he worked with, he kind of bounced around and, and, and struggled to find that voice. When one of his co- co-stars on the state, uh, Michael Ian Black, came to see one of his shows, he suggested that he was like, what if you just l- dropped the kind of kooky characters that you were doing and just told just told your real-life stories? And Kevin, at that moment, was like, oh, that, that sounds risky. And then he just could, it kind of plagued him. He couldn't get the idea out of his head. And so he created this storytelling platform for people to tell their risky stories. And in this clip, he talks about how to work through that. It's similar to some of the clips we've already heard, but, but this is specifically talking about how to work with the audience and how to, to try those stories out to make them a little less risky. And then also why the risk is, is almost always worth it and not as scary as it is in in your head. Again, we're back to the stories that we're telling ourselves. So first of all, I got to say, if you don't listen to the show, definitely listen to uh, listen to the podcast risk. The shows are hilarious. They're all like, just, you know, stories that are about topics that would feel risky to talk about. So sex, drugs, debauchery, hedonism, all that good stuff. And it's liberating, and it is tough to talk about that, but when you share those moments that feel risky, again, people, like, they fall for you. They they believe in you. They trust you. They want to do that, and it's really, really hard to do that. So when you do that, this comes back to the essence of making human, making human connection. People... People are attracted to that because it takes guts, it takes balls, it take, it's risky. So listen to what Kevin says about why risk is a good thing and why you should lean into it when you're sharing your stories. Be prepared for the workshopping process to be long and maybe, you know, like a story that you tell in 2018 you might want to tell again in 2022 and have and rework the whole thing because you have a different perspective about it. So be prepared that you're, nothing has to be written in stone. The story mm. might evolve. It's always a good idea to run the story by uh, a, a few people, one or two people who are who you trust, who are smart, who are caring, and. Even your therapist, I often, if people have a therapist, I will encourage them, try telling the story from beginning to end to your therapist and see what happens. So running it by a few people can be very helpful. I personally will work on a story with GarageBand. I I will, the first time that anything comes out of me, it will be my voice rather than typing. It will be me just sitting down and talking as if I'm talking to a person and knowing, oh, this doesn't have to be perfect at all. This is just me vomiting out what I think the basics of the story are. Then I go back and listen to that recording and that's when I start typing. I start writing down the parts that worked and adding new parts, but it's gonna be in the sound of spoken conversation because that's how it started. Because people have a, fall into the trap of doing things that sound 
literary syntax. People are used to personal essay writing from their school yeah. days, <laughs> and we want to avoid that. Yeah. Um, and finally, you know, the, the thing that I think that, like the biggest thing that people have to learn about storytelling is you really do want to zero in mostly on a few select moments in time, the most key peak moments of the story, and then really flesh those out. You know, if your story is about a car accident, Make sure you spend some serious time slowing down time and mm. giving us all the sensory experience of the accident itself um, so that you're not spending too much time in the story building up all this context about, you know, the town I lived in or, you know, that, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you want to make sure you're, you're putting most of your focus on the key moments and really fleshing them out with sensory memory. Yeah, that's a really great point. And and I just want to call back to the um the initial point you made about about leaving that space open for the audience to, you know, to kind of manip, you know, dance with them a little bit. I really I really love that idea and it's so it's so so true. Oh my god, when I used to do character monologues, I would have such terror about blanking out. In mm -hmm. fact, I tell a story on the show uh where I did blank out once on stage in front of a bunch of famous comedians. And it was a total, it was the actor's nightmare. Oh, no. um, but then when I started doing risk, I'll tell you, like, I remember I was on stage totally blanked out and then just said to the audience, I'm sorry, I just totally blanked out. What was I talking about? And then they yelled out to me where I was and helped me out. And then we were back. You know what I mean? Like it is that conversational. You know, people, storytelling audiences are particularly uh, cooperative and supportive, you know? That's true. Yeah. That's definitely true. So when, when did you create, like, what was the, you know, the thing that led you to create this, the story studio, to take all this stuff and really, like, organize it into this, this structure where you can help people understand the structure of storytelling? You know, it's exactly what you were saying before, that... The, so I created Risk. The first Risk live show was in August of 2009. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know, this was a few months after that incident where I told my first story at the UCB Theater. So I didn't really know much about storytelling at the time that I decided to create a storytelling show. So I decided to just start doing as many storytelling shows as I could that summer. Sure. And then once we had risk up and running, myself and the producer of the show thought, you know, we're doing a lot of coaching people behind the scenes as to how to tell a story. We should just start teaching classes. So we went to the People's Improv Theater and said, hey, could we teach a class under your aegis? And they were like, yeah, sure. And those classes went so great that we decided, wait a minute, we should just start our own storytelling school. Um, and also, by the way, those, those classes also helped me <laughs> become a better storyteller. <laughs> okay, so we have talked and heard at great length today about 
how to overcome shame, how to get past that risky feeling and the vulnerability of sharing your stories and how to do it authentic, authentically and compassionately and, 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 and how to change that narrative in your head. All this is good and great. I think we're understanding that storytelling works. Now we're presented with a new problem. How do we tell a story effectively? What is a story? What's the format? What's the formula? I mean, it's great to know that if I share my story that it will help me work through these things. It may help me create connections. It may get me further along the path of my purpose and my mission. But how do we do it? Because I hear that so often. Tell your story. Just tell your story. Share your story. But we don't talk often enough about how to do it. What does that mean? What does it look like? Okay, I understand the overall theory and the, the, the big picture strategy, but I need to get down to tactical advice. How do I do this day to day? Well, the next clip comes from Ken Adams. Ken Adams is an improv instructor, and he is also the creator of what's known as the story spine. This is a storytelling formula that has been used and, and repurposed, I guess is a way to put it, by Pixar, because um, he explains in the episode how someone that he used to work with uh, then started working at Pixar and brought it there. And so when you see articles about the story spine, most of them quote Ken Adams as the creator of it, but a lot of people who don't haven't done their due diligence uh, attribute it to Pixar. This is a model that they use, and they're some of the best storytellers in, in the past 30 years. So um, if it works for them, I think it can work for you too. But it is a very simple eight-step storytelling structure. And it's such, Ken is an improv instructor, so he he teaches how to build those stories and still leave room for flexibility and, and, and adjusting and adapting to what else is going on. We've talked already today about how it's this kind of in dance with the audience or the story listener, if you want to call them that. It's a collaboration, and obviously that's what improv is based upon. But you can't do that. You can't leave room for that creativity to kind of you know take shape and mold things if you don't have a foundation and a structure underneath it. It's not one or the other. It's not mutually exclusive. You have to know the bullet points and where you're going to go so that when a curveball is thrown, you know how to, to incorporate it into the trajectory or the arc of the story or to get back on track. And so this clip from Ken breaks down exactly how you can do that with this simple-to-follow story 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 spine, storytelling structure. <laughs> That's a tongue twister. All right, check out what Ken has to say. It all started back in 1990 or so. I started working with Freestyle Rep in, in 1990 and, and very quickly into my tenure there when we were only doing theater sports, this light bulb went off. Uh, what, wouldn't it be great if, you know, we improvise for two minutes, then there's a big laugh and then they turn the lights off. Wouldn't it be great if they didn't turn the lights off? And we kept going and we actually improvised a play. So we got to work on doing it. I took the work of Bernard Grabanier and I, I uh, played around with it in order to create something that can be improvised forward. And then I developed a series of exercises to help practice the various skills necessary. Um, so one of them was the story spine. Now at the same time, I was teaching a, a playwriting residency to a bunch of middle school kids back in New York, and I was looking for outlining tools for them, right? Yeah. So I was working on both of these things at the same time. Um, and, and to meet both of those needs, I came up with the story spine. So just for the record, uh, it's an eight-line storytelling exercise that teaches the basic shape of a story with a beginning and a middle 
and an end. So once upon a time, every day, but one day, because of that, because of that, because of that, until finally and ever since then. If you say those sentence starters and finish them with sentences that all build on each other, then you necessarily come up with a story that has a good beginning and a middle and an end, and you can look at the story spine in order to understand how one section leads to another. So it's, it's like the condensed most, um, uh, you know, condensed form of a story that can then be exaggerated and elaborated out into however long the story you want it to be. It's like the core of the storytelling model. Mm. Um, and by, by practicing that again and again, the story's fine. It's eight lines. You could do a million of them while you're making breakfast or driving to work. You just develop this innate understanding of beginning, middle, and an end. What's and, the best? And, sorry, go ahead. No, please, you go ahead. I was just say, what's the best way to use it as practice? Is it, is it to, to build a story with it or to maybe break down stories that you know using it? What's the best way to, for a beginner to understand, to really understand how it works? Yeah, I, I think the best way to use it is, is to use it as a practical tool. Sit there and make up story spines. You know, once upon a time there was a frog and every day she leapt from lily pad to lily pad. But one day she missed and fell into the water. Because of that she drowned. Because of that her family was sad. Because of that they closed the lake until finally her ghost rose and told them to reopen the lake. And ever since then they mourned her, but they were more careful when they went to the lake. So... That, thank you. <laughs> um, so you could you could do that, yeah. and what that does is it it builds the the reflex of telling a story in that model. So you understand once upon a time every day is the routine, and then the but one day is the event that breaks the routine and gets the characters into trouble, and then the trouble mounts as we raise the stakes, and then the until finally is the climax which sets the character on a road towards either success or failure. And then the end is whether or not they succeed or fail and how the world reconstitutes itself as a result of that, resulting in a new routine. Um, and, and it becomes a habit. So then when you're applying it to your full-length improvised plays, it's, it's in your muscles. Our next clip comes from a live storyteller, storytelling expert, uh, who won the Fulbright Scholarship. He is from North Carolina. Shout out to Ray Christian. Uh, and coincidentally, the first story that he got accepted at a live storytelling competition was on Risk with Kevin Allison, who was uh, featured a couple of clips back. And Ray has now won the, the Moth Grand Slam several times and all these awards. Like he's He's super well-known, and he's only been doing this seven years. But he talks about the difference in first of all telling a story live um versus with words and from the way that we approach things here in the storytelling lab and and in, in my uh, personal career i would equate that to video storytelling and why video is so important versus words you know they say that um people people prefer and understand images way more than words. And so if you have to use words, use words that make images in their minds. But if you can use imagery or your face, if they can see you in person, that's always going to be more effective. 
and Ray talks about why. Before we go there, I just want to say that uh, back in season four, the the may I think the first episode of season four, we had Dr. Paul Zach on here, who talked about. Uh, how we can measure the oxytocin levels in, in people when they're listening to good stories. And storytelling is most effective when it's done live in person, like what Ray is talking about and what he specializes in. But a very close second is with video or or in film. That's almost just as, as effective and impactful as when you're telling a story in real life. So that's why it's so important to incorporate video into your strategy. Now, here's the thing that makes it different that Ray talks about. In this clip, Ray talks about your tone and the emotion in your voice or the pauses that you take. And what he's really talking about is another part of, of creating, you know, your your personal brand essentially is, is crafting your unique narrative voice. You're going to tell a story differently than I am, even if we're telling a story about the same thing and we have access to the same resources. You are going to have a different perspective and point of view uh, on the world and on the, the topic and issue that you're talking about, but also you're you're a different person. You're made up of different things. You've had different experiences, and so you should have a unique voice and your story should feel like your story and my story should feel like a rain bennett story and so ray talks about how important that is and why emotion is so important uh, a so important part of of storytelling and how when you're just doing it with words it's not quite the same however i will add that once you realize that you can think of creative ways to use your words to get the same bits of emotion pulled out of the audience Listen to how Ray puts it right here. Good writers, the very best writers, mm -hmm. uh, put people in a position where they can interpret their words and their lettering. A uh, series of dots to indicate pause, or maybe even the word pause. You know, I'm not an expert on writing, but I know that good books that I have read have some elements in the writing to let you know what the emotional tone uh, of what's going on is happening. There are other good books I've read, more academic in nature, they have no tone. Mm -hmm. They have information. They are telling you about falling in love, but there's no, there's no tonal quality to it. When you're telling these stories in person, pauses mean something. Uh, the, the grit in your voice has emotional meanings to other human beings. It's things we've learned over a long period of time, why the tone of certain instruments and words and animals make you cry, get your attention. Words on paper can't duplicate that, the scratchiness in a crying mother's voice. You know, the sound that you get when you're really excited. Your uniqueness, you know, the rawness of your, your, your human self uh, that's not written. Again, the great writers achieve this, obviously, but most of us cannot. But oral expression is something we can do. And that varies too. Most people will shy away from instinctively from being natural because their natural self, they might feel is inappropriate for the environment. They may be embarrassed by their naturalness that you may not sound smart. You may not sound academic. You may sound flippant, whatever. If you're a good actor and you have that talent and that skill, you do that. Good. That's what actors do. That's their skill set. 
Most people are not good actors. So you have to be more natural. And kind of training people to be natural in of itself is difficult, especially if the more learned they are. Children, the younger you are, a lot easier. A lot easier audience. Uh, Because you almost have to stop them from doing it anyway. Stop being yourself and tell a story like this, Susie. You know? (laughs) So it's a lot easier with younger people, a lot more difficult as you go up. I probably went on too much for No, that's great. There's some great bits in there. I know I appreciate it. That's the good stuff. That's that's the good stuff. I appreciate it and my, my uh listeners will as well. Okay, so now we've talked about how to defeat that story that we're telling ourselves how to to lean into that risky feeling and the shame that we might feel with some of the stories that we're afraid to share and that we're extra vulnerable about. We've talked about the structure to follow to tell a good story. We've talked about how to incorporate emotion in our stories. We, we talked about how to craft specific moments that stick with people and how to pull them into our stories instead of being pushy salespeople, right? But... Every one of us is different, right? We've talked about this before. So every one of us is going to tell stories in a different way. Remember, I recently just talked about uh, uh, finding your unique narrative voice. Well, our next guest, our next clip is from Andy Enriquez, who's a, a master storyteller. And he has a quiz that helps you identify what type of storyteller you naturally are. And so this next clip is him breaking down the five storyteller types. And in fact, I take his quiz while we're on the uh, on the air, so to speak, like in the middle of the episode. It just takes a minute or so. You go to, uh, to the website. And so I did it as he was talking. And I took it and I found out which one I was. So I want you to listen to this and figure out which one you are and then listen specifically to the pros and cons of each one because each one has its its positives what makes it effective and makes it work and they also have the things that you have to be careful about that you can tend to do that might hurt your story or make it not connect with people as much so check out uh this clip from andy enriquez about the five storyteller types which one are you so, so there's, there's five different storytelling styles, and I'm going to start breaking them down. So here's the first, the first storyteller style is what we refer to as the reporter, a.k.a. the logical storyteller, reporter, a.k.a. logical storyteller. So who's that? That's the person that when they share stories, they are most concerned about sharing the facts. That's the person. They're analytical. They want to share the facts. They're straight to the point. And if you think about that person, we want to think about like an attorney We want to think about perhaps a doctor. We want to think about a scientist. This is a person that, you know, what's most important to them are the facts. What's most important to them are the figures. And they're not really concerned about connecting with people emotionally. Now, here's the cool thing about the logical storyteller, right? They're really, really great at giving us the facts and the figures and the information that we need. However, the pitfall of being a logical storyteller is that they oftentimes do not make an emotional connection. And so when we fail to make an emotional connection, unfortunately, it gets really, really hard for people to actually remember you. And so one of the, one of the what I like to call areas for growth for the logical storyteller is to get a little bit better at being able to not just share just all of these facts and figures, but find a way to connect with people on an emotional level, right? And they're going to do that 
by being better storytellers. So I want you to think about that. If you're a person who's really big on sort of the facts, you're straight to the point, right? When, when you talk to people, you're highly direct. When you're telling a story, you're not into, you know, trying to enroll them emotionally. Chances are you're a logical storyteller. Now that's great because you're really good. You're fact driven, you're detail oriented. However, we need you to do a better job of connecting with people emotionally. So that's the logical storyteller, right? Uh, Rain, by the way, did you, did you take it yet? I did. All right. Did you get your results? I did. I just finished it. I am considered a marketer, the open loop storyteller. Yes, the open loop storyteller. Excellent, excellent. So we'll go ahead and jump right there to the marketer. So the marketer is the person who's the open loop storyteller. They are great at being able to start a story connecting with people, immediately getting their attention. Now, for a marketer who is aware of what they're doing, it can work to their benefit because a marketer, if you remember back in the day, for those of you, you know, who used to watch soap operas or you're aware of soap operas, I remember growing up as a kid, my brother, my aunts, they used to watch like these soap operas. Like it was called like General Hospital, All yeah, My yeah, Children. Yeah. My mom used and to watch all yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, man. And these soap operas would last for years, right? And the way that they got people to keep showing up for the next episode is they would start a story, get you enrolled, but leave the story unfinished so that you would show up the next day to catch the next episode. So the reason why we call the open loop uh, storyteller the marketer is because they're great at getting your attention, enrolling you into a story, but then sometimes they purposely leave the end open so that you leave yourself wanting and desiring to know more. Now, here's where it's not good for a marketer is when you are an open loop storyteller and you're not even aware of what you're doing. Mm. In other words, you're telling stories and you've got people's attention and then you leave the story open and you weren't even intentionally trying to do that. And you leave people in the audience sort of scratching their head and saying, man, yeah. that was really good. But man, how does that end again? Yeah. You never really finished that and so forth. So what happens is we leave people feeling as if they've missed out on something. Now, that's great when it's intentional from a marketing standpoint. That's not good. If you're let's say you're delivering a keynote or you're delivering a message mm -hmm. and you intended for the story to land and to be wrapped in a bow and really be completed. So it's gonna be really, really important for those of you who are open loop storytellers to know it's a fantastic tool. It's great from a marketing standpoint. Like you can write an email to your audience, right? Start a great story and then say, hey, if you wanna finish the story, join me at my blog or listen in on the podcast. Or if you wanna join me, join me for part two of the training. Right. It's great to keep people there, but if you're not even realizing it and you're talking to a prospect and you start a story and it's a great story, you got them enrolled, but then you don't finish it. And now they feel uncertainty. And because of that, they choose not to buy mm -hmm. or they choose not to opt in or they choose not to do the next step. Then it's working against you. All right. So, so far we talked about the logical storyteller, AKA the reporter. Mm -hmm. We talked about the open loop storyteller, AKA the marketer. Now, the other type of storyteller, this is the one that I fall under, is what we refer to as the evangelist, AKA yeah. heart-centered storyteller, mm -hmm. right? This is the person that really, really wants to connect with people on an emotional level. So for me, whenever I get an opportunity to speak in front of an audience, whether it's on a podcast, whether it's on a stage, whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, 
brain, I want to connect with people on an emotional level, right? And so that is really, really important for me. And so because of that, I oftentimes am going to find a way um, to really share heart-centered stories. And also, they're going to sense a lot of my passion and a lot of my conviction when I'm speaking. Now, the pitfall of being an evangelist, right, is that sometimes the evangelist is so enthusiastic, so enrolled in what they're doing that they can go on and on and on. <laughs> so they got to remember at some point, just like the open loop storyteller, they got to remember to land the plane. Because yeah. what happens when an airplane takes off and it never lands? It's going to run out of gas mm -hmm. and it's going to crash and burn, right? And so, and, and for, for, for those of you, you know, regardless of what your faith is, you know, I like to think about their evangelists as being like, you know, the pastor who's behind the pulpit that says, I'm, I'm almost about to wrap up. Just just give me one more minute. And it's like 30 minutes <laughs> it's later. And they're, like, hour, they're, yeah. they're, they're like, yeah, just 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 give me one more minute. Oh, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I'm almost done. And then it's like another 30 minutes. Right. And the reason why they're so passionate, they lose track of time. Uh -huh. And so the thing about being an evangelist is awesome. Then the other thing about being an evangelist. We have to learn how to be able to shift gears. Because sometimes the evangelist brings so much energy, so much passion, that it's almost like inhaling mm -hmm. and never getting the opportunity to exhale. Mm -hmm. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you noticed, but he just did it just now. Right? As soon as you brought it down, I was like, oh, what's he about to say? Right? So, yeah, right. It works. So, so, it works. so we gotta be able to be able to shift the gear Absolutely. Because sometimes the evangelist could be so passionate and so on fire that you don't give the prospect, the audience, an opportunity to exhale. Mm. And the reason why inhaling feels so good is because you get an opportunity to exhale. And the reason why exhaling feels so good is because you had an opportunity to inhale. Now, if I told you just inhale and just hold it, hold it, hold it. Oh, and they let you exhale, you're going to have some discomfort. Absolutely. And if I told you to exhale, and then I never gave you an opportunity to inhale. So the thing that evangelist has to remember is there's a flow, there's a rhythm between them and the audience, and they cannot just all the time just fire holes and just be on 10 the entire time. They got to have the capacity and the ability to be able to bring it down. So, so far, we Great talked point. about the reporter, the logical storyteller. We talked about the marketer, the open loop storyteller. We talked about the heart-centered storyteller, the evangelist. And then this storyteller is what I refer to as the juggler, a.k.a. the accidental storyteller. We all have this friend. We all have this friend. Yep. This is the person that everything there, what happened is, don't listen, you got to give them some grace because what's happening is every thought that juggles in their mind, mm -hmm. they're going to start the thought, but without realizing it, they go to the next thought. And so this is the person when you are at the social event, they come and they start talking to you and they start one thing and then they stop and then they go to another thing and they go to another thing. And you're thinking to yourself, like, have you been drinking? And then you find out they say, actually, I don't drink. You're like, whoa, you don't drink? Man, during this last 30 minutes, you have talked to me about so many random things, yeah. but you have not completed one thing, right? So when this person ever tells a story, it's completely by accident. And so this person is not intentional. They're not strategic. You know, one of my mentors told me a long time ago, he said, Andy, never make a point 
without telling a story and never tell a story without making a point. This person right here just talks. They have no intention on making a point. They, if they tell a story, hey, hey, it's great they told a story, but they have no intentionality behind what they're doing. And so we need that person to become focused. We need that person to be thinking about like, okay, look, if you're gonna make a point, what's the story you're gonna share? And if you're gonna tell a story, what is the actual point that you intend to make from that story? Like this is super important here. And that's the person that without realizing it, they're just juggling all these thoughts. So here's the thing. What I do like about this person is that they, they don't overthink things, right? So we mm-hmm. like the fact that you don't overthink things because, you know, the logical storyteller will overthink it. Right. They want to know all the facts and details. So there's a lot to learn from being the juggler. However, we need this person to focus. <laughs> we need this person to actually think about, wait a second, let's think about what you're trying to say here. And the last clip from our awesome season five recap is from Miri Rodriguez. Miri is the head of global internships at Microsoft, and she's a specialist in design, story design thinking and empathy. That's what we talked about. Her, her episode was about cultivating empathy in the digital age. She's working with tech and she's working with AI. And she talks about the role and the relevance of storytelling and empathy and human connection within those fields. It's so important because the way that we're moving forward is all tech-based. It's all technological-based. But the things that are going to keep humans relevant are these skills, these storytelling skills, these collaborative and creative skills that humans have that robots and machines don't. So learning how to, to tell good stories and, and collaborate and connect with people through stories is going to be not just important, it will be imperative. It already is, in my opinion. Now, the thing that brings us back always to the connection created by stories is empathy. It's understanding what someone else is going through. This clip, Miri talks about the three different kinds of empathy, how you can cultivate that, and how you can use it and utilize it as a bridge between people to create those bonds and connections that we seek so, so powerfully, that we that we need to 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 achieve those collaborative efforts, to work together, to be creative, to to move forward as humans, we need that connection. And in order to establish those, we need empathy. Everything, everything in storytelling comes back to empathy. I cannot say that word enough. Uh, There was a, I don't even think it was a colleague. There was someone once that said, Unfortunately, empathy is a buzzword right now because of people like Gary Vee and other people, you know, on this this train. And I'm like, why is that unfortunate? I mean, I understand what they were going for, what they meant, but it's like I don't think it's unfortunate that it's becoming popular to empathize with other people. In fact, I think there's a real lack of empathy these days. But in marketing, people are understanding that. People are tired of being sold to. They're already they already have trust issues with with you know fake news and 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 things like that. And so people want authenticity. They want real human connection more than ever before. They're tired of being tricked and spammed and all these sorts of things. So empathy is the key. That is what we're trying to accomplish. That is how we're going to do this together. Listen to how Mary puts it and the way she breaks it down on on how we can create the empathy that we need. 
So there is five steps in design thinking, as you may know. Uh, it is empathize, step number one. Number two is to define. Number three, to ideate. Number four, to prototype. And then number five is to test. So ideally, you're taking an approach that is counterintuitive to all of us, which is we're just going to go prototype little concepts of stories. I call them, you know, concepts of stories. They're not full of fledged stories. Um, and we're going to test them in the market. So it starts with this growth mindset approach of like, I'm going to go fail first and see what happens from failing. And I'll learn not to, how not to do it because my audience will guide me on the how to do it uh, space. So I'm not going to come from this approach that we were talking about earlier from the top down saying, I think my audience needs this and I'm going to drop this and see if it works. So it's reverse. Um, empathize starts with uh, the three levels of empathy. I learned this in my own space and by failing a whole lot, I failed for like three months in engineering uh, because I'm not an engineer. So I was trying to tell stories from an angle that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so empathize is really, um, there's three levels. There's one that's called the cognitive empathy, empathy where we actually level off with our audience as fellow humans. Basically it's zooming out and saying, my audience is human. For that reason alone, I can actually deliver a story that can have what I call a universal truth, something that both of us can appeal to. So for example, at COVID, um, even though I have not had the pleasure of interacting with you enough uh, or know you better, uh, I can probably say that because of a global pandemic, you have experienced some feelings like fear or apprehension, uh, or you've been sad at some moment or claustrophobic, uh, just because we can all say humans have experienced this in general. So this idea helps me maybe deliver a story that I can assume make a really good education, uh, educational guess that uh, if I talk about COVID and my own fears, you will actually connect with me at some point in my human level. And so that's cognitive empathy. Uh, the second one is emotional empathy. And that's where I bring myself a little deeper into this, the, the narrative. And I open up a little bit more about myself uh, as a character to let you see my humanity instead of just uh, keeping it at the top, you know, the high level approach. Mm -hmm. um, and that's also uh, where I get to think more about the audience from a psychographic perspective, uh, not thinking of a target persona, but more of like, what are you feeling listening to you? So Social channels tell us where our audience uh, typically is right now and how they're feeling. It's a great way to really do some active listening in terms of um, the the kind of gauging the the feeling of the situation and the emotional level of our audience in general. Um, and then last one is um, what we call compassionate empathy. And that's where I bring myself or the brand completely as human. And I allow myself to make mistakes, to say, I don't have it all put together, to say, I'm navigating this, you know, as everybody else, even as a brand. And so this enables a vulnerability factor where others can be compassionate with you as the narrator or as the brand as well. And so that's number one, that's empathy, empathizing with yourself, empathizing with your brand, empathizing with all your stakeholders. Then with that approach, you get to define, define who the character in your story is going to be, how many characters you're going to have, list them all, understand how they play in. If you were to switch a character, what happens? What, how it, does it change mm -hmm. the narrative? You define the plot. You know this as a as a uh, as a film director, uh, producer. It's all about basically doing the end to end approach to what the story is going to do and really giving the story a mission. Why are we telling the story? What's the point? What do we want our audience to feel from the story in the end? As you said, there's many stories, so we can take that approach and say, okay, what is the end goal first? I'm defining the end goal for my story and work yourself backwards. 
Uh, and then you get to um, have the fun part of, of it, which is actually a brainstorming uh, ideas, ideation phase. Uh, in, this, in this phase is where I ask people, even at the brand story level, to ask themselves questions, Curi get curious about the story. If you were to give your story a color, what would it be? If you were to give it a smell, what would it be? Bring layers and angles that you wouldn't consider. I typically use an acronym um, brain, brainstorming tool called Scamper uh, that really enables you to look at the intersectionality of the stories and say, if I modify this, if I change the plot, if I started in this time frame instead of that one, what happens? How does it, how does it impact the story or actually the outcomes of the story? So that's a lot of space to really white space to create. That's where the designing really happens. Uh, bring people along the journey with you. And this space is where you're, you're welcome. Like the creativity is at its best. Um, I typically bring people from who would represent my audience and tell me where I'm wrong in this part piece, where I'm looking at, what am I missing in the storyline? Because they can tell me this is my blind spots. Uh, and so there's a, a lot of brainstorming tools that you can use, mind mapping, get creative. Uh, then you get to prototype from there, right? So little story concepts, you can use a blog, you can use the different forms, uh, long video, short video, whatever you want, and start testing it, which is the last one. Um, and at the end, you're really asking yourself when you're testing, did it evoke the emotion that I was seeking from my audience? Mm. You know, great stories are emotional and that's what makes us go into action. As humans, we connect with the emotional aspect of the story. So you start with empathy, you end with empathy and throughout the whole, you know, design thinking approach, you're asking yourself, what is that emotional theme that I'm trying to drive? What is that inspiration that I'm trying to, to give to my audience? Is it showing up in every piece of this and where I landed? And you'll know when you land it, and if it's a prototype, it's going to be a small, low-cost, low-effort. It's not going to be a big production. Uh, your audience will guide you to that. Your audience will either respond or not because, as you know, we respond emotionally to things that are emotional. We connect at that level. And so you'll know, and you'll know you'll get to iterate again and iterate again until, until you have the story. So that's it for our season five recap. I am so excited to come back on February 4th for season six. Uh, this season, we see the themes that are that have emerged. It's really about the stories that we tell ourselves and being vulnerable enough and courageous enough to share our stories because that is the way that we connect with other humans and continuing to tell stories that relate to them and what they are going through and what they struggle with. That story, those stories are the bridges that we need to create those human connections. And once we create those connections, what we do with it then is up to us, but we can take it anywhere we want to go. Thanks so much for tuning in and we will see you in season six of the Storytelling Lab. My name is Rain Bennett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on the Storytelling Lab. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 